time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to The Right Conversations. I am so pleased and excited to introduce you to our guest today. She is, she's just a soul person to me. Um, It's not often that I meet someone and just have this experience of like, oh, I've known you for a hundred years, but we've known each other for 10 minutes. And that's what happened with this human. Um, We spoke on a panel together and just immediately clicked and have been doing some work together ever since. And so when you all suggested and wanted to hear about this topic, which I'll say in a moment if you didn't see the title, um, this happens to be this person's specialty, one of many, but this person's specialty. And so I'm just really excited for you to meet this person. And um, while this topic can be heavy, uh, there's no other person that I can think of uh, to to have a conversation about it. So without any more of me rambling, today we are having a conversation about dating and sex after sexual trauma with Dr. Holly Richmond. Holly, welcome to The Right Conversations. Oh, Rachel, what a beautiful introduction, seriously. And all of that right back to you. Um, Soul connection, energy gets it, and just so much fun. So I have been excited to be here with you. I'm glad we're finally talking about this, and I'm really grateful for the invitation. Thank you. Well, before we dive in, will you tell everybody who you are, what you do, what lights you up, just anything you want to share personally, professionally, all of the above? Yeah, sure. So my name is Dr. Holly Richmond. I have a PhD in somatic psychology. So for any of your listeners that that don't know what that is, so somatic translates to body. So everything I do, every client I see, um, our sessions are mediated through the nervous system. So I'm very body-based. I don't do touch therapy. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, so I don't do touch therapy, but the body is central to how I work and central to survivors of sexual trauma. Um, so PhD in somatic psychology, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified sex therapist. Um, I'm licensed in three states. I live in the Southeast of the U S at this point in time. I'm a mom, an older mom of two boys who are just about to turn eight and 10. And, uh, I like to play basketball. Love it. (laughs) I love it. What got you interested in a, becoming a therapist and B, specifically kind of narrowing in on sex and then into sexual trauma. Yeah, it, it's a, a story. I'm going to keep it as brief as possible. <laughs> um, so I was a journalist for 15 years before I went back to school for psychology. While I was working as a journalist, I read a book in the mid 2000, like 2005, 2006, called True Notebooks by Mark Salzman. He was also a journalist and writer living in LA. I was near the LA area at that time. He went into a boys' detention facility in Los Angeles and taught creative writing. Mm -hmm. 
this book just blew my mind in so many ways for him as the teacher, for the boys, as learning and healing through words. Um, so I decided to do it. So I called around girls detention facility just north of Los Angeles. I got myself a job, a volunteer position in Camarillo and went in once a week for about two years to teach creative writing to girls between the ages of 13 and 19. Wow. So what I didn't expect is in their writing and in the healing, um, I heard story after story of sexual trauma, gang rape, mm -hmm. sexual abuse, date rape, just, um, you know, the, the girls that are obviously in a detention facility, they have not had the most supportive lives. So yeah. hearing these stories, uh, it was really hard to hold, obviously. And I had no training other than to say, oh to look at goodness. them and say, I'm so sorry, this isn't okay. Um, yeah. So my, I'm so sorry, this isn't okay. Uh, translated into me going back to school. I got my master's in clinical psychology um, in California. You have to do 3,000 years, uh, 3,000 hours. Oh my gosh. It 3, feels like 3,000 years. I, I did it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 3,000 hours of internship. And I chose the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center. Mm -hmm. um, while I was there and working with survivors, I quickly learned that I was taught very well how to be a good sexual trauma therapist, but no one taught me about the what comes next. And to me, the what comes next is having good sex and healthy relationships. So I wrote my dissertation on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault. And in 2001, I translated that into my book, Reclaiming Pleasure, the recovery of sexual health after all kinds of sexual trauma, really from a sex positive body-based perspective. And here oh, I am. Oh, I, thank you for sharing that. First of all, that was a beautiful summary. Um, of what I know is a, a long story. Um, you know, for those of you listening who don't know, getting licensed as a therapist in California is really a haul. Um, that was where I originally got licensed. It's just, it's one of the hardest states to do it in. And so it takes a level of commitment on the part of the therapist to really, really, really just dig in and to do all of those hours in such a in, an intense and and heavy topic um it really i mean hearing you talk about it it's like you were in the place that you needed to be and you noticed this pull and then continued to just like unpack and unpack and unpack and i love that you got to this point of like okay i can hold the trauma piece and we can heal the trauma but then what? Mm -hmm. And I think that that so often is kind of where the conversation stops in, in our culture is like, yeah, I went, to, I went to therapy and I feel a bit better about the, the trauma that happened to me, but now I'm in this relationship or I'm dating or whatever the case may be. And I'm struggling to relate with sex in a healthy way. So what did you learn during this process? Like what, if we had to just like go back to the basics for anyone listening who's like, yeah, that's me. Like I, I had sexual trauma and now I'm trying to date. I'm trying to be in a relationship. I'm trying to have this healthy sexual relationship with myself. Like what, what did you learn from that researching all of that? Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty simple. Um, again, easier to say, harder to do, but it really, in, in the dissertation, it boiled down to three parameters. And then in writing the book, Reclaiming Pleasure and doing the course, I've added a fourth. It's just kind of a 
a bonus chapter. Um, so the three parameters that I discovered for reclaiming healthy sexuality, the first is control, right? And control, that sounds kind of self-evident. Anyone who's experienced non-consensual sex is going to want to have control, but there's two pillars to control. There's maintaining control and relinquishing control. Mm. And with most survivors of sexual trauma, the place where I'm working the most is relinquishing control. Most survivors, their life is going to be pretty buttoned up, dialed in. Um, they're going to be fairly rigid or constricted in food, exercise, location, what their life looks like, all of these pieces, right? So the of course, we're making sure they make they maintain control if they're in a relationship or if they're dating, making sure that they have their voice. But the other piece is relinquishing control to get to item number two, which is pleasure. If we're really constricted and rigid, or if we're on the other end of the nervous system where we're collapsed and feeling chaos, we're not going to be able to take in pleasure. So first parameter, control, maintaining and relinquishing. Second parameter, pleasure. Pleasure, Rachel, this is where we we love. We love to talk about pleasure. Control is like the logistical chapter of the healing. Yeah. Pleasure is the fun, exciting chapter of the healing. So within pleasure, we're looking at desire and arousal. That's where we're going to start, figuring out your sexual template. Most survivors of sexual trauma, and I'm going to say most people in general that are brought up in the U.S., have no idea what turns them on. Yeah. They've never thought about it. And especially female-bodied people, we're taught make your partner happy, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about let's just look out there. If they're happy, that means you did a good job. Yeah, it's this weird codependent thing. It's like, yeah. you're good, so I'm good. Yep, yep. Um, so helping survivors discover really what turns them on, and that's through those two lenses, desire, the psychological process of wanting, arousal, the physiological process of wanting. Desire what do I find sexy? Arousal, what turns me on? So we're going from the mind, the cognitive, the, the wanting to arousal, the body-based. And I do all of this through the five senses. So hopefully everyone listening, you can start to see how that somatic approach is, is filtering itself in here. And then the third piece is connection. So got the logistics, we've got the fun, and then I get the look of like, oh my God, holy shit, now I have to go out into the world and put this <laughs> into practice. Yeah, yeah. So if you don't want to be in romantic or intimate connection with someone, that is fine. That's not what I mean by connection. It can be connection with your family. It can be connection mm -hmm. with your friends. It can be connection with the local animal shelter where you volunteer, your church, most people want some degree of intimacy in their life or a relationship. So learning how to tolerate connection, deep intimacy, intimacy, reclaiming secure attachment. And that's so much of what we're working with, with survivors because the attachment with somebody somewhere was shattered. Sexual trauma does not happen by ourselves. Sexual trauma happens in relationship. Therefore, it has to be healed in relationship. It happens to the body. Therefore, it has to be healed through the body. Control, pleasure, connection. The fourth bonus chapter, fantasy. Mm. So we don't get to talk about fantasy enough. And this is um, practical because most survivors of sexual trauma have a fantasy that they are ashamed of. And there is usually a thread to their sexual trauma. So whether this is a forced seduction fantasy for anyone listening, we say forced seduction instead of rape fantasy just because 
because for obvious reasons, it sounds a lot better. Um, so of course, seduction fantasy, which so many female body people have in general, and then survivors have a lot of those as well, just as a way to reclaim. Or if there's a spanking proclivity, um, a strangling proclivity, any kind of power play, that can be really confusing and shame-inducing shame to a survivor of sexual trauma because they're just like, I am so broken by this and now I'm totally fucked up. What am I ever going to do? So I discuss fantasy in this healing way. And then really, what are you interested in? What would you like to try? Oh, I love the, the structure and the, the breakdown. <laughs> I think the healing in general can feel so overwhelming and abstract. And so to hear it in progressive steps and in, you know, columns, it, it just seems so much more accessible and, and easier to move through again, easier said than done. Right. Um, okay. So I have two questions for you. Hopefully after I ask you the first one, I remember this. <laughs> if okay. someone is going through this process and they're dating, when do you think is a good time to share if at all with someone new that there's this history. It's, I hear this question a lot and it's like, do I need to tell this new person? When do I tell this new person? You know, if they start to touch me or want to kiss on the first date and I want that, but I also want to let them know that if they touch me here, that might be triggering. Like, do I need to tell them the whole story? Where do you suggest people start with that? I mean, so the easy answer is this is unique to every person. And I have a practical answer for this. So I feel like it's fair only if the vulnerability is reciprocal. So that's mm. my way of saying I don't want a survivor to share a deeply um, intimate part of themselves unless they're feeling some kind of reciprocal, you know, um, intimacy or sharing from the other person. You never need to share the details of your story. Some of my most profound cases, I never knew the details of what happened to that person because I don't need to know the details of what happened to that person. They were violated in some way. And we need to remember most sexual trauma isn't violent, it's violating. So when a survivor shares with you, you're not saying, oh, well, at least you didn't get hurt at least you didn't end up with any scars at least at least at least that's not going to help at all right yeah. so we're just validating i'm so sorry that happened to you what can i do to support you um rachel you bring up a great point though with triggers so if you're not to the point of reciprocal vulnerability and there is a trigger for you so if you touch me on my lower back i'm going to like leave my body i'm going to get so dysregulated you're going to want to share that we'll talk about how or you can't call me baby girl, or you can't call me sweetie pie, because then you're going to lose me again. Mm -hmm. So how could we talk about that in a way where you don't have to go into the whole story, but share, hey, these aren't okay for me. You could just say, I don't love to have my lower back touch, just FYI. I don't love these terms of endearment. Yeah. So let's just try to avoid those. I feel like women in particular, female body people, we feel the need to over-explain to validate our position. Just say, I don't like this. It's a complete sentence. Yeah. That's you don't have to say mean about it. It's just like, no, it's not for me. Right. 
Right. That's, yeah, that's incredibly helpful. Um, I think that there is this inclination to want to not defend, but explain and like try to, I don't know, justify the the stance or the boundary or the ask or the limit. Um, but yeah, we don't have to. And mm-hmm. in the same way that like, if you're out to sushi and you don't like tuna, you just say like, I don't want to eat the tuna rolls. I don't, I don't like tuna. We wouldn't be like, it was because my mom served me tuna when I was five. And like, I threw up like you, you, no, I just don't like tuna. I'm happy to order anything else to just avoid tuna. Yep. Yep. And if you don't like being touched on your lower back or on your cheeks, there's plenty of other places you can hold hands. If you're, if you're up for that, it can go slow or you can just use the words. I need to take this really slow. And if your partner doesn't respect that, then good to know from the jump and you cannot waste your time. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. You've probably figured this out by yourself by now, but if you own a vulva, did you know that there is a three in five chance that having penetrative sex doesn't result in an orgasm? Enter Zumio. <laughs> Zumio is a one-of-a-kind toy with the sole purpose of providing a unique, stimulating experience. And guess what? It doesn't even vibrate. It rotates with a concentrated pinpoint energy that allows you to control how and where you use it. There are four different models specifically designed for your personal intensity preferences. And Zumio is great for vulva mapping and exploring the rest of your body, whether that is solo or with a partner. Check out www.myzumio.com slash Rachel, that's R-A-C-H-E-L, for a special discount for the Right Conversations listeners and take control of your orgasms today. Okay, so my other question, which I did remember and I'm very happy about, uh, because I know you and I could just like go off on a million different routes here. What is the connection that you have found in your work between BDSM and power dynamic play and sexual trauma? Mm, It's that there's a huge correlation. And this is not everyone. If you don't engage in power play and you are a survivor, you're perfectly fine. You never need to do it at all. However, that BDSM, so that's about power and control, right? So that was the first parameter, that that thing in my dissertation while I was like, oh, that's self-evident. But as you dig more into it, it's so nuanced. And it's because of this word reclaiming, reframing, making it mine again. So when survivors step into a um, dom subspace, and typically they're going to be in the sub role, typically. However, I've had plenty of survivors that like to be in the dom role. But if they can enter into a subspace and trust the dom so much, and anyone who knows this work, uh, between a dom and sub, who's in control? The sub, sub. right? (laughs) The sub is always in control. The sub says how things are going to go. They say, what's a yes, what's a maybe, what's a no? Let's just, for the sake of talking about it here, let's just say she is entering into this space and perhaps she was um, sexually assaulted when she was young by another female body person. If she steps into this dom sub role and the dom is is another female body person, she writes the scene, she makes all the rules, she pushes herself, 
and knows as soon as she says no, or as soon as she says her safe word, the Dom is going to say, okay, are you all right? What do you need from me? Are you good right now? How do I know that you're in your body? Look at me in the eyes. Do you want to go forward or are we done? That is going to reset her nervous system time and time again until she decides, I love power play and this is going to be part of my sexual template. Or she's going to say, I worked through what I needed to work through. I don't think Mm -hmm. I need to have sex this way anymore. So you don't have to choose BDSM and be married to it for life. I think that was what I was trying to say. (laughs) Do you encourage, not everyone, because I don't want to, but almost everyone to try something like that as as a form of reclaiming? There's going to be some element of it. And even, um, Rachel, in prescribing Sensate Focus, there's a Mm. level of that, right? So Sensate Focus, for any of you who don't know, um, designed by Masters and Johnsons in the 60s, it's a framework of giving and receiving that's very um, binary. So one person is the giver, one person is the receiver, and it's all about using your voice, communicating what you like, what you don't like, more of that, faster, slower, harder, all of those words. So there's even enough in there. And if that's what some survivors like, that's plenty. For others, they're going to be want to go all the, all the way to bondage or shibari or um, edge play. Um, blood play. I mean, you can go as far as you want to go with it. Yeah. Ugh. okay. Love. So what are some, are there any misconceptions around sexual trauma and then dating and sex that come up a lot that you hear? Yeah. So the biggest misconception still is the, that sexual trauma is violent, not just violating. So what we're taught in Western culture is that rape happens when someone's hiding in the bushes and jumps out. Mm. Rape happens when someone's hiding in the back of your car. Media frames rape is stranger rape. Stranger rape is less than 15% of the total um, collection, the total data of any kind of sexual trauma. Over 85%, more like 88% of sexual trauma is perpetrated by someone known to the survivor. And it is not violent. It's a really hard statistic to hear. Like, I know that statistic. And still, as you've said it, I felt my stomach turn. And so just if you're listening and you had a stomach turn moment, like, just know that you're not alone. Take a breath. Pause us if you need to. Like, it's, it's, that's hard to hear. It is. Um. And the really interesting piece of this, uh, several years ago, I was working with another clinician and, and the kind of the penny dropped for me. And this was probably after, you know, all of my time at the Rapes Crisis Center. I hadn't yet written the book. It's this. There's no kind of sexual trauma that is good, but I realized when I treat someone who has experienced stranger rape, the healing process goes more quickly. And here's why, (laughs) because they're not, there isn't the internalized shame. There wasn't, there isn't the, why didn't I, how did I not know better? Why didn't I say no? How did I not know that this person was an asshole? Why didn't I fight back? So when we have that internalized implicit shame or complicit shame, that fawn response, because most sexual trauma out of our four trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, They're going to be freezer fawn almost all the time. Unless it's stranger rape where you didn't see it coming, then guess what? Then it's going to be fight or flee. 
Mm. A survivor is going to feel better about that because he or she did something about it. Whereas if your brother is doing something to you when you're nine and you don't even really know what sexual trauma is yet, or your husband is um, spousal raping you, right? The whole structure, the whole context is yeah. off. Yeah. And it's more confusing because you have this relationship with this person. Whereas if you're running through Central Park and get, you know, jumped and and attacked, of course, that's terrifying. And there are other things to work through. And it might be scary to go back out into the park by yourself. But you're not processing through the like, I've known this person for 10 years and they they betrayed my trust. It's like that has their own stuff that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Rachel, thank you for saying that. So with stranger rape, um, you're, we're going to have a lot more PTSD symptoms, um, agoraphobia, OCD, things like that that come up that are awful, but it's not the internalized shame because, you know, a, a survivor with the nonviolent um, sexual trauma is going to make that about them, internalize it, whereas a stranger rape, that gets externalized. It's like being robbed or someone mm-hmm. jumping you right? That, that Mm -hmm. person did it to me. Whereas a typical survivor is going to say, I did it to myself. Have you ever worked with a survivor with their, with the person that uh, assaulted them? Yeah. In family systems frequently. How can you share any example or what that was like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's often siblings. Um, I have one client right now with her father. Um, It's the perpetrator. It has to start with the perpetrator taking responsibility. I mean, there's Which I can imagine is not the most common thing in the world. No, it rarely, rarely, rarely happens. The times I see it most are with siblings where um, the abuse happened. Let's say Mm -hmm. the kids were seven and nine, eight and 10, six and eight. And the perpetrator sibling, which I even struggle to use that word because we know that there was something going on in the family system that manifested this, the trauma. Yeah, yeah. But when when the sibling that um, did the violating can say, I am so sorry. I had no idea what I was doing to you. How can I make it better? I'm here with you. Hey, here's what I think happened to me and why I acted out that way but I'm still taking full responsibility for what I did. How does it feel comfortable to be in relationship with me? Do you need to go no contact with me for a year or two? Do you want to be limited contact? Would it be helpful if we're in therapy together every week? Have you ever seen a relationship fully repair? Hmm, That's such a good question. Fully? And of course, fully subjective. Yeah. 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 Not really. Usually it's when a survivor, so they go home for some family thing. There's always a sense of, hey, I can tolerate this for an hour or two. And then I'm going to have to go back to my safe people, my safe space. So it's never just that sense of being safe in the presence of your perpetrator, no matter how, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like non-intentional it was. So if an eight-year-old abused a six-year-old, they're talking about it as adults. There's still going to be a level of of unsafety in that situation. Yeah. Thank you for answering that so honestly. I, I, yeah. 
So for anyone listening who is a survivor of sexual trauma and perhaps hasn't gotten support to either A, start healing from it, or B, they have done that initial work, but haven't moved into the, how do I have this healthy relationship with sex and life in general? Where do you suggest someone listening like that start? Yeah. Um, and this is, if, if you're starting this journey, I'm, I'm so happy you're here and there's a lot of different ways you can go. So let's go broad picture. So RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, the Rape and Incest National Network in the U.S. is going to have a lot of resources for your local rape crisis centers. So if you're in a big city, you're going to find, you're going to have access to your rape crisis center and there you will get free or very low cost services. You might even find support groups, which if you can get in a support group, get in a support group. The data shows us that survivors that do group therapy or group coaching, group counseling, really make progress more quickly than individual therapy. For a lot of survivors, they're like, nope, I need like a year of individual and then I'm going to feel safe to move into the group. Mm -hmm. That works great too. Um, Otherwise, you can find a good trauma therapist or a good sexual trauma therapist. Um, if you're body-based, perhaps EMDR or something like that would work for you, somatic experiencing, or maybe CBT, talk therapy is your jam, that's fine too. If you know from the get-go that you want to move from the trauma into the healing, the sexuality piece of this, my recommendation there is going to be to find a sex therapist or a person who is trained in human sexuality because we want to make sure we have a really sex positive person on the other end of this because you can imagine what happens if you're a survivor who is also poly if you're a survivor who likes to engage in bdsm if you're a survivor who is anything out of the cultural norm that yeah. we've been fed I don't want you sitting with a therapist that has had six or eight hours of the most basic training in human yeah. sexuality and doesn't know how to hold this space because they're going to pathologize all of that. Yes. And, and say, oh, because you were traumatized, now you can't be, now you can't just be in a relationship with one person. And you and I, Rachel, can sit there and be like, oh my gosh, those are, th that has nothing to do with no. the other. No. And it, it just, it infuriates me. I hear these stories a lot as I, as I know you do too, of like, yes, this is the reason why you're doing this or this. And it's like, yeah, it, it's just, or maybe don't do that and you'll feel less, uh, you know, discomfort in your life. I, yeah, the whole thing. Right. Just, yes, find someone who is trained and sex positive. Right. And, and I want to say some survivors are sexually compulsive as well. So we'll usually go one of two ways. We'll either kind of shut down sexuality for a while or we'll move towards it to try to rewrite mm. it time and time again and make it okay mm. for us. So if you are um, having, you know, if you're masturbating multiple times a day and you're not comfortable with it, if you're sleeping with people who you wish you weren't sleeping with, there's any kind of compulsivity. I also want you to find a sex positive therapist because that could get lumped into pathology and sex addiction, which um, a sex therapist is not going to believe in. Um, so how yep. you're, how you're behaving sexually is going to be pathologized. I don't want you doing anything compulsive that you don't want to do, but I'd also don't want to slap you with the label of addict. Thank so you so much for that. saying that it, uh, <laughs> that could be a whole other episode I, is like the, the, this whole, uh, oh, yeah, we won't even, I can't, yeah. but we'll, okay. yeah, we'll go on for like 25 <laughs> more minutes. Um, 
Holly, thank you. I am just so grateful for you for the work that you're doing. And I will put all of your info in the show notes, but for anybody who is more auditory or frankly can't access show notes because like I struggle to find show notes on podcast apps sometimes, where can people find you and where can they buy your book? How can they work with you? All the things. Oh, thank you. Rachel, thank you so much for having me here. I love our work together. I know we're going to be doing a lot more of this in all the capacities. So stay tuned. Um, so my website is just drhollyrichmond.com, D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D, social media at drhollyrichmond. Um, the book is called Reclaiming Pleasure, A Sex-Positive Guide to Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life. It is sold where all the books are sold. Amazon, your local bookstore. Um, it's also um, an audio book. And Reclaiming Pleasure, the course, you will find on my website. You'll find a direct link there. Uh, What else? I am also the Associate Director of Modern Sex Therapy Institutes, who, Rachel, I know you've worked with. Um, If you are a practitioner, and Rachel, I think you have a lot of practitioners listening to your show. If you are interested in sexual trauma certification, if you want to become a sex therapist, Um, If you are interested in understanding sexuality and neurodiversity, sexuality and kink, sex and poly, like we have, I think, 48 different certifications at this time. So modernsextherapyinstitutes.com is a great place to go as well. Awesome. Thank you so, so, so much. And again, we will link everything in the show notes. Um, Holly, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Rachel, thank you. And, And I'll see you soon. See you soon. That's all for today, you sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together.